Hello, and welcome to the Reorient Podcast, the show about international issues and international people with an Asian twist. My name is Jesse Friedlander. Hello, everybody. Welcome to the Reorient Podcast. Today is the 8th of February, 2022, where I am, but the 7th of February, where my guest today, Mr. Anthony Elson is, uh, who's based in Washington, D.C. I'm extremely uh, pleased and honored to have uh, Mr. Elson on to our show, given he has a very long and distinguished uh, work experience as a senior um, official, senior uh, international economist and staff member at the International Monetary Fund. Um, he was responsible for managing many of its financial system programs, as well as macroeconomic surveillance surveillance exercises across the Asia-Pacific and Latin American regions. And Mr. Elson's uh, taught at a number of universities, and uh, uh, including Duke, Johns Hopkins, and Yale. And he has also done uh, been affiliated with the Johns Hopkins School of Advanced International Studies, as well as a number of other uh, schools and institutions. And he is the author of, I think, in the last 12 years, five books, one called Governing Global Finance, The Evolution and Reform of International Financial Architecture, another called Globalization and Development, Why East Asia Surged Ahead and Latin America Fell Behind, another one called The Global Financial Crisis and Retrospect, Evolution, Resolution, and Lessons for Prevention, then one called The United States and the World Economy, Making Sense of Globalization, and most recently, the one that we're going to be focused on for this conversation, The Global Currency Power of the U.S. Dollar. So with that, I'd like to uh, welcome Anthony Elson to the Reorient Podcast. Tony, welcome. Thank you very much. I'm very pleased to be uh participating in this podcast, and I uh, appreciate having been uh, approached by you for that. Well, I, it's uh, wonderful uh, to be connected, and uh, we've done a little bit of work together uh, just now, but not in the realm of e international economics and monetary policy, but in uh, technology and information technology. So it's uh, it's really right. a pleasure to, to know you. So, um my first question, Tony, is uh, you've you know you've had a very long and distinguished career in this area of, of monetary policy and globalization. Um, what prompted you to write this most recent book, um, "The Global Currency Power of the U.S. Dollar"? Um, each of my books, in fact, has come out of a theme or set of issues that I examined in a previous book. It's it's uh, interesting how there are links across the five. And when I was working on my last book, was, which was an attempt to understand why there had been, uh, among many groups in the United States, a popular reaction against globalization, uh, I began to make my own assessment of where I thought the United States had benefit, benefited or um, had adverse effects from globalization. 
And in the arena of finance, I became more aware than I had been of the uh, incredible global currency power of the dollar. And uh, there were dimensions of this that I had been generally aware of, but had not examined uh, much in detail. And, and in fact, as economists, we've been learning more about this field as time progresses. Uh, just as one example, the influence of the dollar uh, as a mechanism for the denomination of trade is is something that's only been really developed in the last 10 years. Uh, currently, the um, retiring chief economist at the IMF, Gita Gopinath, has been in the lead of that. So that's just one example. So I thought it would be interesting to focus on the various dimensions and ways in which the dollar serves as clearly the dominant reserve currency and how it is a very clear um, external uh, representation of the global hegemonic power of the United States. And those there, there's a strong linkage, as you might guess, between those two phenomenon. But we don't so much think of the dollar and all its various features of um, economic hegemony. So it was, to answer your question again more briefly, it was sort of a trace of ideas that I have been thinking about in some of my previous books. Understood. I would say, having read your book, it is very comprehensive, very lucid, and very persuasive in really revealing and spelling out why the U.S. dollar has a hegemonic role in the global monetary system. And it actually assuaged some of my own concerns because many of us look at the United States and look at the U.S. dollar and see a lot of vulnerabilities and, and reasons for concern and wonder where that's leading us. But I think your um, very, uh, again, comprehensive analysis shows that the role of the U.S. dollar is not going to diminish anytime soon. And in fact, in, uh, on the contrary, and, and this was an interesting statistic that you, um, you highlight in your book, that the, the role of the U.S. dollars actually expanded uh, since the 1950s, even though the U.S. share of GDP has diminished. So if anything, the U.S. dollar over the last, you know, let's say five to seven decades has gained in strength, not uh, diminished in terms of its utility and acceptance around the world. So um, it makes sense that it's something that many people may not uh, understand and may misunderstand, in fact, uh, given, you know, the complexity of the situation. Yeah, I appreciate your comments, and I think they're correct. There's no question that as globalization has intensified, uh, so too has the dominant power of, of, the, of the dollar. But 
uh, you pointed to a fundamental inconsistency in the current situation. While I agree with your assessment that there's not any obvious substitution for the dollar right now, um, there have been a series of questions that analysts have raised, in particular coming from the global financial crisis, which originated in the U.S. financial system that I think began to raise questions about the solidity of the dollar and its foundations. And those those have increased now because of, I think, um, a, a very strong weakening in the um, U.S. hegemonic position um, in the last four or five years. There's no question that under the previous uh, U.S. governmental administration, there had been a clear withdrawal in many areas having to do with multilateralism and the position of the U.S. US uh, government, which I think ultimately um, have diminished somewhat the prospects that have people have for the dollar. And I think as you look out in time, there is a basic inconsistency between the prospective position of the U.S. economy and the global economy and the current hegemony of the dollar. And those are going to be um, tested and exacerbated over time. Um, I think you can point to a number of um, problems and areas of concern in, way, in ways in which the global system depends on the U.S. economy and the dollar. But as you say, uh, when there's no clear view as to what may be the replacement uh, for the current system yet. Um, I would note uh, it's quite interesting that if we look at the sort of the weighted value of the dollar, it's it's actually more or less unchanged uh, over the last uh, five years. So it, it does seem that. What do you um, mean by weighted average of the dollar? Uh, so if I reference the um, the the DXY, which is the U.S. dollar index, um, which is a commonly referenced uh, index of the of the dollar versus other major world currencies. Um, it's mm. currently at uh, 95.54. Uh, and if I go back, let's say, you know, five years um, to uh, um, basically 2017, um, uh, this time, it started uh, roughly at the same point. Uh, it was at uh, 100.44. And if I go back to, say, 2015, which is seven years ago, um, it was at uh, actually 94.985. So it's actually almost yeah. identical to what it was seven years ago. Um, so it, it doesn't seem that the market value of the dollar versus you know its major uh, competitors like the yen and the euro uh, and, and British pound actually has moved that much despite all the um, 
the all the changes that we've seen in the in the geopolitical and, and domestic political arena, as well as some of the um, economic challenges that the U.S. has uh, encountered. Yeah, I think that's correct. I mean, when you look at the dollar vis-a-vis the other major currencies, it goes in cycles. Mm-hmm. There hasn't been a marked rate of appreciation or depreciation over time. So that is right. And I think part of the reason for that is that um, dollar financial assets, in particular uh, U.S. government securities, act as the preeminent safe global asset for the world. So um, with the depth and um, strength of U.S. financial markets and the uh, weight and strength of the market for U.S. government supports securities, it's, it's supporting that behavior. Yeah, and again, in your book, you do a very um, thorough job of of talking about the importance of the U.S. capital market in the global monetary system, um, and the need for um, for countries to have uh, safe uh, areas to to put their excess uh, liquidity. And the United States, more than any other. Um, country has provided a very deep pool of of uh, investment opportunities for um, for uh, foreign countries and companies around the world. Um, the other thing that you mentioned, I thought, was very interesting about the U.S. dollar is that its hegemonic role is not based on treaties, but rather it, it's it's a natural reflection of the of the influence and the advantages that one has by using the US dollar. So to the sense to the extent that the US dollar's role is um organic and it's a uh, reflection of of supply and demand and attractiveness that would suggest that it's a much more durable role than if it were dependent on you know, a board of an international organization or other countries to, to do it by, by treaty. Yeah, that's, I think, a really interesting point. Of course, the dollar came out of its institutionalized hegemonic role encapsulated in the Bretton Woods Agreement. But of course, that broke down in 1971. And we've been on this, um, as you put it, a completely market-based system built around the strength of the dollar and the position of the global economic power of the U.S. economy as the major trader, the major uh, source of financial transactions. Um, And then you get into factors like its uh, uh, open capital markets, its strength is a in legal foundations and things like that. So it has very much been an autonomous arrangement that um, initially created a shock for the economy when the dollar went off gold in 1971, but that countries have um, naturally gravitated to as being a very convenient major reserve currency to, to depend on. Absolutely. So th- this brings me to a question of um, the role of the IMF and uh, other international organizations in, in terms of 
the global monetary system is. Could you give us an idea of of what that role is and how it's evolved, and and perhaps is it is it less important now than it were say 20 or 30 years ago when you had more currencies that had uh, pegs and, and were not free floating. Um, uh, yeah. Yeah. That's a really interesting question. I think um, I'd approach it first at a political angle, which is that um, the advanced countries importantly, and obviously most of the rest of the world community has invested a lot of prestige into the IMF as being the basic organization for discussion on international monetary issues. Um, the United States and Europeans uh, continue to invest it with important authority as being the only place where countries can get together to talk about issues. Um, now, as an international lender of last resort, um, it is not as strong as the power of the Federal Reserve. Uh, and that's because in an ad hoc, um, um, non-legally determined way, the Federal Reserve has played a role through its swap agreements and other credit arrangements to really underpin and support the dollar system. The fund is in a kind of secondary role to that um, dollar-centered arrangement. Um, and certainly for the emerging market and developing economies, most of which who don't have access to the swap system of the U.S. Fed, depend importantly for financial assistance um, on the IMF. So the IMF and the Federal Reserve uh, play in a um, uh, non-institutionalized arrangement as co-lenders of last resort with um, perhaps a greater role because of the prominence of the Fed for the advanced countries. But the, the, the fund has definitely continued to be throughout the periods over the last 50 years a very active uh, player in providing financial assistance to a great number of countries. So it seems to me that um, we saw the IMF playing a uh, a fairly significant role back during the Asian uh, financial crisis in 1997 through 1999. Right. And uh, many Asian countries, again, because of their soft or hard pegs to the U.S. dollar and, and created um, imbalances that were not sustainable and very overvalued uh, currencies – were forced to have sort of just forced to break their pegs or in their pegs and, and it created a lot of volatility, but the IMF stepped in and was very involved in Asia. But once it, as a lender of last resort, it often, the loans come with um, conditions, right? There's conditionality. And it seemed that perhaps in some countries, those conditionalities 
were more acceptable or palatable to the public than in others. And I wondered if you might be able to discuss a little bit about that role of of, of lender last resort and and sort of the political ramifications of having the IMF involved in uh, in supporting countries when they are, are facing um, stress in their their currency, monetary, or uh, financial systems. Well, the, the fund was obviously front and center in the assistance being given uh, to the Asian countries. I think in retrospect, the lesson that was learned was that the fund overloaded its programs with conditionality, that it was uh, seeking to find arrangements with the governments to address a whole range of problems Uh, maybe some of which didn't deserve primary focus at that time. Thank you for listening. We hope you enjoyed this portion of the podcast. To access the entire podcast and more high-quality analysis on Asia, please visit our website, reorientpodcast.com. That's one word, all lower caps, reorientpodcast.com.